Welcome everyone to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible Teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our work to make Christ known among the nations, go to traincpe.org. Today we turn back into the archives about 20 years and continue a study into the lives of the disciples of our Lord. Did you know that the greatest confession of faith regarding the person of Jesus Christ was rendered by the apostle we know as Doubting Thomas? In John chapter 20, verse 28, after Thomas has seen the resurrected Jesus and placed his hands into Jesus' own wounds, Thomas gives this confession. He says, My Lord and my God. Today, we will begin to study this profound declaration that Jesus is not only Savior, but that he is indeed the one true God. Let's look at three things in this confession very briefly. The first thing is this. Thomas says, my Lord. And Thomas says, my God. He says, my, my, two times. What Thomas is doing here is he's making a personal confession that is binding to his life. Thomas is not saying this because he is limiting the range of Jesus Christ's lordship. Or he's saying, you are my own personal deity. Others may have other deities, and there may be other gods for other people, but he is my God. I was once in Colombia, and I was with a young man who was trying to share his faith with individuals, and I kept hearing him say, you know, my God is like this, and my God is like that. And I finally stepped aside with him, and I talked to him. I said, listen, I think you need to be careful about constantly defining God as your God because it comes off as though you're sharing your opinion of God or the God you fashioned or cultivated or the one you find acceptable. And you need to be careful that and that's not the spirit in which you're saying it because he's not simply your God. He is God. He is God. But here is Thomas and he's not giving some little narrow definition of God by claiming as a personal deity. What he is doing is he is demonstrating this confession is a binding confession to his own life. It is something that he is bringing to himself. He is applying this profession to himself. And so he says, my Lord and my God, I am bound by what I say here. The second thing is this. Let's note that Thomas hails Jesus as Lord. This is a confession, G. Campbell Morgan tells us, of sovereignty and of submission. The name Lord was really not an uncommon name in that day and age. It would kind of be like us saying boss to somebody. The disciples called Jesus Lord, but when they referred to him as Lord or Master, what they were really saying was that they were recognizing that they had granted to him authority over them to teach and instruct them, and that they had, as their master, as their teacher, submitted themselves to his instruction. And so we don't use the word Lord or Master today, but if we were, and it's possible, it would be perfectly acceptable according to the certain norms of English and grammar that you could go to school tomorrow and you students could call your teachers Lord or Master. And what you would be doing, because you're referring to teachers this way, and by the way, the domain in which the statement that someone was Lord was limited to what it was or what office they fulfilled in your life, who it was that you called Master or Lord. And so if you were to go to school and you were to say of your school teacher, they are your Lord or your Master and call them that, you're not saying that they have a right to tell you when you're to go to bed at night, and that's parents' responsibility. And you're not saying that they can give a curfew for you and they can tell you to eat all the food on your plate. You know, that's the parents' responsibility. But what you are saying is that they have the right to, in the classroom, say, all right, class, turn to page 329 in your textbook and such and such. I want you to read that text for everyone right now and 
Tomorrow you're going to have a quiz and you better be ready for it. And what you're saying is that they have authority over you in that domain, in that classroom. And so you might have a job and at your job you'd call your employer your boss. You might, in a sense, in those days, call him your Lord. And you're not saying that he has the right to tell you who you're going to marry, how many kids you're going to have, or anything like that. But although what he pays you may influence that decision. But what you are saying is on the job that he has authority over your responsibilities to carry out your duties to that employer. In that sense, he's the Lord over a certain domain. Okay, then you understand that. So when you read that people refer to Jesus as Lord, you have to understand that it didn't necessarily mean everything to them because it was limited by what they defined Jesus or who they understood Jesus to be. All right? So who does Thomas say is his Lord? Well, he says that the one who is his Lord is also his God. And what Thomas is saying is this. You are the Lord and God of my life. Because I am calling God Lord, you, Jesus, are absolutely sovereign. And you have right to rule over every single part of my life. Your rule is inescapable for me. I can't run from you. I can't fly from you. There's no point, no place, no partitioning of my life. All of it is in subjection to your rule and your lordship. Thomas is saying, you are sovereign, and I submit. It's a confession of sovereignty. It's a confession of submission. The third thing is this. Not only did he say, my Lord, but he said, my God. And again, G. Campbell Morgan says that this is a confession of deity and worship, and we've already spoke of this. Thomas is not a polytheist. He is not stating his faith in more than one God. He is declaring that the one true God has been manifested before him, and he sees him, and he bows before him, and he adds to his act of submission an act of worship. There's no other place where we're told that men worshiped Jesus until you get to the Mount of Ascension. And there we're told that when Jesus appeared before the disciples as they were going up the mount before he sent them out. We're told that the disciples fell before him and worshipped him. Not through his whole life, not through the four years of his earthly sojourn are we ever told that they really worshipped him. They didn't really understand all that he was, but now they do. Thomas had said the thing that signaled it all, and now all of them when they're with Jesus are bowing at his feet and worshipping him. My Lord, it is a confession of sovereignty and submission. My God, it is a confession of deity and worship. And this is what Thomas has come to. This is what God has revealed to him. Now the question for us today is this. How did Thomas get to this point? How was it that he came to the point where he was now bending before Jesus and breathing out these words that sound so audacious and in his day would have sounded so blasphemous? What was the reason for Thomas's confession and the other question to ask is this, was Thomas right? Was he correct? All of history has to be determined whether that was the right conclusion that Thomas reached. The whole church exists because there are a large, vast number of people throughout the history of the world who have concluded that Thomas was right. But now let's find out how they come to that point. Because you see, the disciples have come to the same conclusion Thomas has. Maybe you have come to this conclusion as well. Maybe you haven't. But you need to know how it is that a person comes to this conclusion because it is not a little minor conclusion. 
This is not a minor thing. This conclusion is the greatest claim that a person can make. This conclusion is something that puts you in stark contrast with the vast majority of the people in the world today. So how do you come to that point? How do you come to the point where you're like Thomas, bowing at Jesus' feet and saying, my Lord and my God? And we, we're going to understand something here at the very end, and it's that Thomas is not somehow simply acquiescing to the facts. Thomas is not simply stating that, well, I believe what I see. Thomas is drawing conclusions that run deeper than what he sees. He's making an application, a statement of faith that goes beyond what he sees. And by the way, that's what faith is. Faith is going beyond what you see and acting upon what you see and what you understand to be true. And that's where Thomas got. Well, how did he get to that point? Well, let's understand a few things. The first thing you need to understand is this. Thomas was a man with a question. Maybe you've been like that as well. Thomas was a man with a question like all the other disciples. They were regularly asking themselves. They were regularly wondering, who is this man? That's what they were asking. You read the account of the Gospels, and periodically you'll see them stating the question, who is this one who's able to speak to the wind and the seas and they obey his voice? Who is this one who has authority to cast out demons? Who is this one who has power to raise the dead? They were asking the question. They were debating it among themselves. They were seeking an answer. Let's remember what we've learned about Thomas so far. In John chapter 11, we learned that Thomas was a courageous individual, although he wasn't a person who necessarily believed everything Jesus said. Jesus told him, I'm going to go up to Bethany, and there we're going to raise up Lazarus from the dead. The disciples said, Lord, don't go there. There are people waiting there to put you to death. Thomas is worried about the fact that people are waiting there to put him to death. He doesn't hear what Jesus has to say. He doesn't believe in what Jesus is saying, really, that Jesus is not going there to die, but to raise up the dead. And so Thomas, after Jesus says, we're going, fellas, says, well, let's all go, guys, and let's die with him. Thomas doesn't believe everything Jesus said. He doesn't adhere to all Jesus' word. But one thing is this, Thomas is loyal to Jesus, and he is courageous. He's willing to go up and die, even though it's not what's going to happen. Instead, he's going to go up and witness Christ do a wonderful miracle. The other thing we learned from John chapter 14 was that Thomas was not a pretender. He would not pretend to understand something and believe something that he didn't understand or believe. And so in the Last Supper, before Jesus went out to the Garden of Gethsemane and was portrayed and went to the cross, Jesus was telling his disciples that he was getting ready to depart from them. And Peter said at that time, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered and said to him that you know where I'm going and you know the way. Thomas, hearing Jesus said that, couldn't pretend to understand what was being said. And he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. Jesus answered Thomas and said this to him, Thomas, you know me, and you know that I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Thomas, you know all that you need to know. You do know the way because you know me. You understand that. Now, Philip interrupts, and if you remember, Philip said this to him. He said, Lord, all right, you're the way, the truth, and the life, but listen, if you'll just show us the Father, then that will be enough for us. That will suffice. That will settle it. We'll understand then. And Jesus responded to Philip and said, Philip, have I been with you so long and you don't know me? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Thomas, that not believing but courageous, cautious, unpretentious disciple was listening to all that Jesus was saying at that very moment and he was taking it in. 
You remember that Thomas was one of the twelve, that he had lived with Jesus, that he had sat with Jesus, that he had ate with Jesus, that he had been with Jesus for over three years. He saw all of Jesus' miracles. He had been there at that latest miracle where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. He had seen at least three times in which Jesus had brought the dead back to life throughout this period of time that he was with him. And all this time, seeing all these miracles, hearing all the instruction that Jesus gave, listening to all that Jesus said, Thomas was still not yet quite at the point where he reached a complete conclusion to the matter. He still was asking and wondering who Christ was. And I believe all of the disciples were doing the same. They had said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They had made some determinations. What they determined was that Jesus was indeed the Savior. They understood that. And they'd also determined that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Now, we understand when we read Son of God, we apply this profession that Thomas just made right now, and we understand what we mean, or we understand the Son of God to mean. And Jesus received the statement when they said, Thou art the Son of God. And we could understand that Jesus received their statement and received the full meaning of everything they were saying. But I want to tell you something. They didn't understand the full meaning of everything they were saying when they said, you are the Son of God. They didn't understand it. Because in the Jewish mindset, it was their nature to refer to the kings that God had raised up, like David and Solomon, and the Psalms will reveal this, to refer to the king as God's son or God's child. And so when they said, you are the Savior or the Christ, the son of the living God, what they really were saying is, you are the king. You are the king who's come. And they didn't necessarily understand all of the fuller meaning that this was God the son. This was God. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.